All right, good evening, everyone. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. I'll, uh, I'll pray for us, and then we'll start, we'll start our study for the evening. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word that we might know you, and that we might know what is true about you and what's true about us, and um, we know your word convicts us of our sin, it shows us our fault, it shows us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And, but it also shows us the grace of the Lord Jesus, who, though he was rich, became poor for our sake, that through his poverty we might become rich. And so, Lord, I pray that even tonight as we study another, another section that has things that are hard for us to hear, uh, that we would not forget that that the judgment that is due to us was born by him. And that we would rejoice in that and that that would allow us to take our sin seriously uh, and, and be honest about it because we know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. So we're on Micah 3 tonight, housekeeping. So we're here tonight, Micah 3. Next week, Micah 4. And then I think we have a week off. We should because I'm not going to be here. So you guys can come, <laughs> but I'm not going to be here. So And then we'll pick it up the following week, and then we go straight through then 5, 6, and then a couple on 6 and 7. Uh, somehow. I haven't totally decided. I know your schedule says one thing in terms of what the text is going to be. As we get closer, the exact breakdown of the text might change for like six and seven. So we'll see. I may decide something different. So we are, uh, as we get into chapter three of Micah, we're into the second big section of the book. Right. So the first section, the first Oracle, uh, chapters 1 and 2, uh, and I remember these, these oracles have these cycles of judgment and salvation, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. So, uh, getting into the start of the second oracle, the second oracle is chapters 3 to 5. Remember, these, these big sections all begin with this, this word here, this call to listen. And so... We begin tonight, chapter 3, that begins here now, O heads of Jacob, and we'll talk about that. And so tonight we're just in chapter 3, and chapter 3 is the, the judgment section of this second, the second oracle. And it specifically is going to be about rebuking Judah's leaders. Um, you think about the, the connection at the end of the first oracle, at the end of chapter 2, you have this little salvation section, right? We talked about that last time we were together that God is going to gather his people after announcing all of this judgment coming on the people for their sin. God is going to gather them together after the exile. God is going to gather them together. He's going to gather his remnant, and, and they're going to be led by the breaker, right? This one who's called the breaker, the one who is the Lord, their king. So there's this, and then he's pictured as the one who gathers the people like a flock. So he's the shepherd king who's going to lead them out of 
captivity and bondage. And, and as we look ahead and we look, particularly as we, uh, the, next, uh, the next time, not the next time we're going to talk after that, we're in chapter 5, we're going to see more about who this king is. And uh, we know from looking back from the New Testament that this king is the Lord Jesus. You consider that salvation section at the end, and then it leads right into this next section where it's rebuking Judah's leaders. And the contrast is very stark. So you have God promising salvation and promising to bring it about by this, this ruler, this leader who acts like a shepherd, who tenderly cares for his people, who's, who's leading them as a king to, uh, to victory, bringing them out of exile. So you have this leader, and then the next chapter is all about Judah's current leaders, and they're not so great. And so God is going to rebuke them. What we see is in, in chapter 2, we looked at a, this particular group of people that, that God was rebuking, um, probably the, these, these wealthy landowners who are abusing their uh, their wealth and, and taking advantage of people by stealing their, their land because they had the power to do it. And so that focused a little bit more on maybe economic injustice, right? The rich taking advantage of the poor. In chapter 3, the leaders that are in view are probably the political and religious leaders. So a little bit different. And uh, the way that chapter 3 is structured looks a little bit like this. There's three cycles in chapter 3. Each one is a, is a rebuke made up of uh, outlining the sins of the people, the sins of the people that are specifically being addressed there, followed by the judgment that is going to come on them. That happens three times. First with the corrupt rulers in verses 1 to 4, then with the false prophets in verses 5 to 8, really 5 to 7, and then there's, a, there's kind of this bracketed verse. Verse 8 uh, is uh, Micah kind of stepping outside of that and saying, now I'm going to tell you about myself real quick. And then goes back into this cycle in verses 9 to 12 where it just takes all the leaders. Everybody's corrupt. So we're going to work through that. And we'll talk a little bit about maybe why Micah kind of sets himself apart there in, in verse 8. But this is where we're going. This is So as we, as we go through, remember it's... Uh, these three cycles, each cycle is made up of two parts, outlining the sin and then announcing the judgment. And it kind of escalates until you get to the very, very end. Verse 12 announces this judgment that is coming on Jerusalem because of the leader's sin. We learn from uh, the book of Jeremiah, this is in, uh, Jeremiah 26, that this uh, series of prophecies in chapter 3 occurs during the reign of Hezekiah. Because uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah, which is written later, Jeremiah who prophesies later, is, uh, is prophesying to, to the king at the time in Judah. And uh, He's prophesying very similar things to what Micah is saying. This city is going to be destroyed if you people don't repent. The leaders don't like that. But then some of the really wise people say, well, this is exactly the same thing that Micah said. 
And he said it at the time of Hezekiah. And didn't Hezekiah repent at Micah's teaching and the city was spared? So they refer back to it. So we know this is the context of what's happening there. That probably about the time Hezekiah comes to the throne and is going to begin to initiate these reforms, uh, Micah may be um, instrumental in that. So let's start. The first section, uh, verses 1 to 4, is Micah's going to rebuke the corrupt rulers. Verse 1. And I said, Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? He starts by addressing uh, this group, heads, heads of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel. These could be uh, just very general terms for leaders uh, of any kind, right? Our word, our English word leader can be used of leaders in multiple contexts. Um, but because of what it says here, uh, is it not for you to know justice? I think specifically here what we have in view are those who are in charge of kind of the, the, the political and judicial arena. And oftentimes those, those roles were put together in Israel, right? The king is not just the, the ruler of the land. He's also the one who is supposed to execute justice. He's the one that's supposed to make sure that, that the justice that is laid out in the law, the way that things are supposed to be in God's design for the, for the nation, that those things are being worked out. And so he's addressing uh, this, this specific group. It's probably not just the king, although it uh, certainly would include the king, but also all of these, these rulers, these political and judicial leaders in, in Judah. Now the same words are actually going to be used down in verse 9. I think they have a more general uh, reference there, that it's not just these political rulers, but it's all of the rulers in Judah. And I'll show you why I think that. Later, but here, because he specifically talks about that these heads of Jacob, these these rulers of the house of Israel, are supposed to know justice. That that's the reason why uh, I think that uh, it's got this very specific reference here. So verses one to three is going to outline these these rulers and their sins. Right. This this question, this rhetorical question, is it not for you to know justice? The, the assumed answer is yes. You're supposed to know justice. You're supposed to know what's, what's right and what's just. Um, but the idea of knowing justice is more than just... Just, I have to be careful about the way I use my words. The idea of knowing justice is more than uh, knowing cognitively what's right and wrong. Right? It's, it's more than knowing what the law says to do and not do and being able to say that. It's, it's, uh, it's about determining, deciding, and establishing justice. You, you see the, this, the word used the same way if you go to Genesis 3, right, in the fall. And when Satan, the serpent, tempts Eve... He says, well, if you were to eat this fruit, you would not surely die. That's a lie. And he's questioning God's word, and he says, 
No, you will not surely die, but you will become like God, to which she should have said we're already like God. That was the point. Right? He made us in his image. We don't need to be more like him. So you'll be like God knowing good and evil. But the idea there is not that, that it's just that God knows what's good and evil. It's that God gets to declare what's good and evil. He gets to decide what's good and what's evil. He gets to determine it. What the serpent is tempting Eve with is you can get to decide what's good and what's evil. More than just knowing, because they knew what was good and what was not. God said, do this, don't do that. Right? They knew it. Satan was tempted. You can, you can establish for yourselves what's good and what's evil. So the judges here, these, these, these rulers, they're not just supposed to cognitively understand what the law teaches. They're supposed to, to establish it. They're supposed to uphold justice and be able to discern and distinguish between good and evil. And yet, what have they done? They've become those who hate good, and love evil. Rather than upholding what God says is good and pronouncing judgment against what God says is wicked, they've perverted justice. Now this, again, we see the, the connections between what Micah is rebuking the people for and what the law has said. We see this in, in, in Deuteronomy 16. Verses 18 to 20. This is uh, what, uh, what the law says about uh, justice in the land. He says, You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice, and only justice, you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord God, the Lord your God is giving you. All right, so that was the call for these people who were going to be in these positions of authority to render justice according to the law. It's like, you, this is the only thing you're supposed to do is judge rightly according to what God has said. Don't pervert justice. Don't do that, and you're going to live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Subtext, if you don't do this, I'm going to take the land away, which is exactly what he does. The rest of verses 2 and 3 have this really wonderful description. So he said that these leaders, they hate good and they love evil, they tear off the skin from them. The, the them here, uh, probably we're going to get to, is my people. They tear off the skin from them and their flesh from their bones. They eat the flesh of my people. They strip off their skin from them. They break their bones. They chop them up as for the pot and as meat for the kettle. Sounds pretty good. Now, are these leaders cannibals? So this is probably a, a, uh, an example of poetic hyperbole, right? It's, it's not that what's actually happening is the leaders are 
killing people and throwing them into a pot to eat them. Okay? Uh, at the least reason, because we, we don't read about that happening anywhere else. If that's what was happening at, at this time, we probably would have read about it in, say, First and Second Kings. That's not what we're seeing happening. So this is probably a way for Micah to express just how terrible the sins of these people are. He's like, it's, it's like you're consuming my people, right? Now, you're supposed to be shepherds. You're supposed to be caring for the flock. Instead of caring for them, you're slaughtering them and eating them. Right? So if, the, if the, this, this shepherd king who is going to come is the one that they're looking towards right now, they're being cared for, cared for by those who are just going to, to butcher them and eat them. Right? And so that's what's happening. And we'll see later some of the other things that are going on that may be reasons why uh, Micah would be so upset about this. But at the very least, they're taking advantage of those that they are supposed to render just judgment for. They're treating them as if they're just cattle, right? Now, God has harsh words for those who, who treat his people this way. You can read in, uh, in Ezekiel 34 there, he's rebuking uh, people who feed themselves on the flock rather than feeding the flock who take advantage of the people that they are supposed to be caring for. So in verse 4, then, is the judgment. He says of these people, Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time, because they have practiced evil deeds. One of the things that we're going to see as we work through this is that the, the punishments that uh, God is, is meeting out for these, these different sins are, are kind of uh, this, this idea of escalating abandonment. That the, the people have totally rejected God, and so in verse 4 and then in verses 6 and 7 and then the very end at verse 12, you have this, this escalation of God removing his presence from the people. These, these people who are supposed to care for those who come to them and cry out for justice, when they, they think they need justice and they cry out to the Lord, he's going to respond to them exactly the way that they've responded to those that they were supposed to execute justice for. Right? Their, their punishment is, is commensurate with their crimes. This is the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now it's possible that this is a reference to when, when, when the people of Judah are, are on the verge of being conquered, that these, these rulers are going to cry out to God, and they haven't been crying out to God the whole time, right? They maybe have this veneer of spirituality, but they're not, they don't really care about God, and so then they're going to cry out to the Lord, and God's going to be like, it's, it's too late. Your heart's not in this. You just want to escape judgment. This is, um, if you look at Proverbs uh, 21.13, you can see this principle at work. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, 
he too will cry out and not be answered. Because, like it says, they have practiced evil deeds. They've not upheld justice the way they were going to. And they, as representatives of God, they're, they're supposed to be executing this justice in the land as, as God's representatives. And so as they don't do it, they're not just not following the law. They're also presenting a blasphemous picture of who God is as one who doesn't uphold justice. In the next section, verses 5 to 7, Mike is going to do the same thing with these false prophets. So he moves from uh, confronting the the, the political and judicial leaders, now he moves to the religious establishment. He's talking to the, the prophets, these people who are supposed to be speaking God's word. And Michael was a prophet, but there's also more prophets. We see this in a number of places in, in uh, both the, the Old Testament histories and then also the, the prophetic writings. See this in the book of Jeremiah. When Jeremiah is confronting people, there are these prophets who come and say, don't listen to Jeremiah, he's not telling you the truth. Um, those guys, uh, it doesn't tend to work out real well for them. Uh, the true prophets who follow God, even though uh, their lives aren't super easy, they don't end up um, being struck dead by the Lord like some of these false prophets do. So Mike is going to address these, these people who claim to be prophets, who claim to speak for God, and yet evidently are not doing that at all. So you can tell he starts a, a new section here, right? So he ends, uh, verse 4, he's talking about these, these leaders. And then he starts in verse 5, and then he, start, he starts with, Thus says the Lord. So this is it's kind of an indication. All right, here's a, here's a new section. Thus says the Lord, concerning, concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. So you have the leaders who are pictured as feasting on God's people. And here the prophets are those who are leading his people astray. Now, that phrase in itself is quite an indictment. Uh, the prophets are supposed to be guiding the people into the knowledge of God. To make clear what God's word was. Not only do they lead the people astray, they don't, they don't do it just out of ignorance, right? It's one thing to lead somebody astray just because you don't know what you're talking about. It's another thing when you mean to do it, when you knowingly do it, and when you do it because you're greedy. They're doing it deliberately because their hearts are set something other than God and what they can get. So look at this. When they, that is the prophets, when they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry, peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. The idea here, I think, is when, when the prophets are, are given something by the people who are coming to them, they say one thing. 
When the prophets are not given something, they say another thing, right? So when they have so, so when people come with gourmet food for the prophets, like, ooh, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get a favorable prophecy. This is this is like paganism, right? If I bring enough stuff, then God will be pleased with me. Then I'll get a favorable report. It's like, okay, if I just bring enough for the prophet, and the prophet's like, yeah, you, you know. If you grease my palm a little bit more, then I, I might hear something a little bit different from God. Right? They cry, peace. When they get something, uh, the answer that they give is uh, peace. Everything's going to work out great for you. Right? You can hear the, the prosperity preachers today with this, right? If you just send Send $100, you know, care of whatever, to my ministry to pay for my jet or my diamond cufflinks or the throne that I have on my page at my church. Then, you know what? I'm going to hear from the Lord, and the Lord's going to say, you're, you're going to be blessed, right? Blessing's going to pour out of you. That stuff is a lie from the pit of hell. When they have something to eat, they cry peace. You can, you can read more about this. This, this very thing happens in, in Jeremiah 6. Uh, so there's a lot of parallels between the way that God's prophets are treated by people, right? Jeremiah laments the fact in Jeremiah 6 that, that uh, everybody just wants to hear what they want to hear. And that the prophets that are working in Judah, he says, they've healed, uh, they've healed the brokenness of my people superficially. They've been saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It's like when you go to the doctor and you have a very serious illness and the doctor says, you have a cold. It's like, now, pay me a little bit more money and maybe I'll tell you the truth. That's exactly what these, these people are doing. They're, they're favoring, they're giving good answers to those who can pay them. They're giving bad answers to those not. You don't pay me enough, God's angry with you. So then verses 6 and 7, it's the judgment. Therefore, because of what you prophets are doing, you false prophets are doing, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will become dark over them. Right? If the prophets are, are those who are supposed to hear God's word and, and speak God's word like light into darkness. Right? Their, their whole ministry is dependent on, on receiving words from God and speaking to the people. God says, I'm, I'm not talking to them. Night for you without vision, this idea of vision uh, being prophetic vision or a prophetic word coming to them. That they're, they're not going to have anything. All they're going to be able to do is just stumble around in the darkness like everyone else. Verse 7, the seers, seers is an, just another term for, for prophets, those who see visions. The seers will be ashamed. The diviners will be embarrassed. Again, another word for prophets. This one maybe has a little bit more of pagan undertones. The diviners, the ones who look for, try to read divine omens. The diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths, which is a, uh, a symbol of shame. 
because there is no answer from God. So again, like the, the leaders, because of the sins of these prophets, God is withdrawing himself from them. They're going to seek words from him, but he's not going to answer them. Verse 8, then, is set apart in some ways from uh, the rest of the chapter. Uh, in, uh, in literature, we, uh, you, can, th- you don't need to remember this, but this is, this is a bonus for you if you're interested. Um, you call this a, a Janus construction. Anybody know who Janus is? Janus is the two-faced Roman god. Right? You ever seen the movie Goldeneye? The James Bond movie? All right, never mind. <laughs> Janus is the two-faced Roman god, and so it really just is a, is a reference to something that looks both directions. So it's called the Janus construction because it, it both connects to what comes before it and what comes after it. So it, it provides a segue, an overlap between these, these sections. So, Micah says, on the other hand, which that would indicate to us that it's saying something related to what's come before it. On the other hand, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage. So unlike these false prophets that you should not listen to because they're leading my people astray, I am filled with power. I'm filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Now that's what the prophets were supposed to be, right? They're supposed to be filled with the Spirit of the Lord and speaking what the Lord says, And so for Micah to say, on the other hand, I'm filled with the Spirit of the Lord, is to say, these guys are not. I'm filled with justice, unlike the leaders. So that maybe pointing back to the the first four verses. And courage, or uh, boldness, or might. And then specifically, the reason that he's filled with this is Why? To make known to Jacob his rebellious act, and even to Israel his sin. And that points forward. As Micah contrasts himself with with the the leaders in Judah at the time, Micah saying, I'm the only one who's doing what God is asking me to do. All these false prophets. They're lying to you. These leaders, they're taking advantage of you. I'm filled with the Spirit of the Lord. I'm going to declare to you this sin. That points forward to the next, the next four verses. So verses 9 to 12, the third of these cycles that goes through sin and, and then punishment, really addresses all of the leaders. So we've, we've looked at the the judicial, political leaders, we looked at the religious leaders, now it zooms out and it's like, now we're equal opportunity. We're going to talk about all the leaders now. We're going to see that in, uh, in verse 11. He mentions all these different leaders in Judah. He says, now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. So repeats what he said in, in verse 1. To all these people who are, who are running the show This is what he says about them. 
They abhor justice. They twist everything that is straight. Again, we're back to those who are supposed to uphold what's right in the eyes of God in society, right? They're supposed to care for those who can't care for themselves. They're supposed to execute justice and judge rightly. But apparently they hate justice. They twist everything. They they build Zion with bloodshed. They build Jerusalem with violent injustice. It's a little, those phrases are a little enigmatic. Um, It may be a general reference to the idea that, that these leaders have built their entire society uh, on this systemic injustice, that they just, from, from the foundation of everything they've done, they've just set it up to not be the way God wanted it to be. Um, I, read, I did read a commentary that suggested that it's possible that it also may have uh, maybe a more concrete reference I suppose concrete is maybe pun intended, to actually uh, building these people, taking advantage of those who are, are going to be building these defensive fortifications in Jerusalem to, to guard against these approaching armies. And that um, sort of like you've heard stories about like the building of the Great Wall of China, right? And like there's all these people who died during the construction of it and they just buried them in the wall, right? And so it, I, I, there's a commentary that suggested that might be the case. Maybe it's possible. I don't see a ton of, of support for that in, in the narratives, but it might be. So it's a possibility. But it may just be saying you have built your society on injustice. You have built your society on being disobedient to God. And then beginning of verse... 11. So verse 11 is split into, into kind of two, two sections, these two uh, sets of three verses, or three, uh, three lines, rather. So verse 11, beginning of verse 11, this is why I think that where, where it says here, it says heads of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, that's referring to, to everybody, because here in verse 11, it names these three groups. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. These are the three major offices in Israel. The the leaders, this is the kings and the judges, they're the ones who are running the government, politics, the judicial branch. Then you have the priests, they run the temple. They're supposed to be teaching people and making sure the sacrifices happen, right? And then the prophets are the ones who are supposed to be speaking for God. And yet all of them, at the root, have the same problem. Right? They're, they're greedy. Very similar to what we talked about last week, this, this heart, this idolatrous heart that is covetous. Right? These, these people, they're, all they want is, is more money. Right? And the, the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, as Paul would say. Right, so the, the leaders, the judges, they're pronouncing judgment, but they're doing it for a bribe, which if you remember when we were reading in Deuteronomy 16, that is directly contrary to the law. God says, don't accept a bribe. 
Justice, and only justice is your concern. And so they are doing what is directly contradictory to God's law. And you have the priests. The priests are instructing for a price. Well, does that mean the priests aren't supposed to get paid for anything? Well, no, they are supposed to get paid. The Levites, the priests, they get the tithe, right? So the rest of Israel tithes. They give all of these resources and all this money, and that's supposed to go to the Levites because the Levites' job is not to farm land and make stuff. The Levites' job is to take care of the temple. And so the, the rest of Israel pays them. What is probably in view here, the Levites saying, we're not satisfied with that. We need a little bit more. How can I, how can I moonlight on the side? Get a little bit more. And the fact that instructing for, for a price is paralleled with this idea of for a bribe would I think, lead us to believe that instructing for a price is a negative thing. It's not, oh, well, they, like Paul would say, it's right for one who, who, uh, who uh, preaches the gospel to make his living by the gospel, right? It's right for, for somebody who's voca- a vocational minister to be paid to be a vocational minister, I agree with that verse, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. This is, this is different. This is, this is greed. Um, be like if, uh, if you came to me with, with a question and I said, I'd be happy to answer that, but here's my schedule of fees for anything extra. And then her prophets, divine for money, same, same idea. They are supposed to be speaking God's word, but they're saying, well, we're only going to do it for the right price, for the highest bidder. All these people operating as spiritual mercenaries, right? Not servants, not what God set them up to be, to serve the people. They're, rather, they're serving themselves. And then perhaps the most disgusting thing is the end of verse 11. That this is what the people are doing. They're, they're leading with injustice. They're taking advantage of people. They're stocking uh, their, their wallets and their portfolios with all of this extra money, uh, right? They're, they're prosperity preachers. They're just getting what they want, taking advantage of people. And yet they lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us, right? So, they're doing all of this stuff, and yet they put on this, this, sh- this hypocritical show of being super spiritual and saying, well, we know nothing's going to happen. God's, God's with us, right? This is similar to what we read in the previous chapter, right, where it's, uh, and I think in uh, verses 6 and 7, right, these, where these false prophets say in verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, when, uh, one of the translations, if it's, if it's right, we talked about this some last week, um, that these false prophets saying, don't, don't say this. Disgrace will not overtake us. Right? These people say the same thing. So they hide behind their theology. Well, God, God's, I mean, this is where God's temple is. God's not going to destroy this place. How could he possibly do it? Same thing happens in Jeremiah 7. The people hide behind the fact that, well, the, the, the Lord's temple is here. He's not going to destroy Jerusalem. And Jeremiah says, oh yeah, watch. Micah says the same thing. He says, therefore, on account of you, so he's specifically 
aiming at the leaders here. Now, the leaders aren't the only ones guilty in the society, but they're a big part of it. So on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Uh, remember, Zion is, is the, uh, this poetic name for Jerusalem, right? Mount Zion. Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. The city is going to be destroyed. Not just that, but the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. So the city is not just going to be destroyed, but the temple is going to be destroyed. And the mountain on which the temple sits is just going to become woods, a wasteland. Right? And then this is this ultimate judgment of God because you saw the leaders, God said, I'm not going to answer them. The prophets, God said, I'm not going to answer them. I'm going to withdraw myself from them. And what's, what's here with the temple being destroyed? The temple is the, is the symbol of the presence of God amidst his people. So for the temple to be destroyed is for God to say, I'm out. And you see this in the book of Ezekiel. The glory of the Lord leaves the temple. He says, I'm not staying here. This is not my place. So these leaders, though they, they lean on the Lord hypocritically and say, is not the Lord in our midst? God says, uh, no, I'm not. Therefore, calamity will come upon you. I want you to notice one thing before we, we close. Verse 11 and verse 12 it connects in an interesting way to Jesus. Right? In, uh, in theological study, oftentimes we talk about Jesus fulfilling these three offices of ancient Israel, prophet, priest, and king. That the prophets and the priests and the kings of Israel are all pointing forward to things that Jesus is going to fulfill. And so here in verse 11, you see the exact opposite of what they were called to do, and yet when you look at the life of Jesus, right, the shepherd king who's promised at the end of chapter 2, you look at his life and what he does, he does everything that they don't do, right? He judges justly. He leads graciously and tenderly. He doesn't offer himself for a price. He offers himself as a ransom. He speaks God's words for money, but because he himself is God and declares what is, what is right, and he is the place where God dwells. Right? He's the true temple. And so you see uh, here at the end, as, as, um, as Micah is, is saying, this is what's going to happen to you. Even then, looking forward, and we're going we're gonna to pick up on some of these things in the coming Weeks because chapters 4 and 5 deal with what's God going to do in light of this, right? This is what's going to happen because of the sins of the people, the greed of the people as they're taking advantage of those who, uh, who, who can give them nothing or they're making people give them things. They're favoring those who, who can give them what, what they want. See how that contrasts with who, with who Jesus is and what, what God is going to do in the future. Um, right, so... Just thinking forward, you know, centuries from, from Micah, human leaders always disappoint us. And even when the people return from exile, 
their human leaders disappoint them. So they're waiting for this perfect leader to come, this perfect prophet, this perfect priest, this perfect king, this perfect shepherd. One who, in whom God will dwell and dwell among us forever. So we're going to see how God is going to provide that, what he's going to do in the future in the next chapters. But for now, we're still stuck on judgment. So um, as, you, as you go to your discussion groups and you think about uh, some of the, the questions, um, it can be very easy to think, oh yeah, I know people like this. Can you believe this person in leadership or that person or the, I, right? Now, some of that's true, but before you jump there, I want you to think about how is what's going on in these people's hearts, how is that going on in your heart? Because you know what? It is. And it's going on in my heart too. The same seeds that gave birth to this sin in the people dwell in my heart too. So we want to be thinking about that. Real easy to talk about what, what they're doing, those people that I don't like. Real hard to say, you know what? I do the same thing. And to be thankful that this judgment don't, doesn't come upon you because it came upon Jesus. God doesn't abandon you. God doesn't withdraw himself from you because Jesus was crushed for you. 